Hello and welcome to Bread and Thread, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. And I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and who love history and uh, making stuff. And uh, we normally like to start by talking about what we have been making and or baking recently. Um, So what have you been up to? I have been the ill, so yeah. I have not been up to much. It has also been the warm. It really has, excessively so. <laughs> so a bad combination for like getting stuff done. Yeah, having a temperature during a heat wave, it turns out, is not fun. Mm. Did you manage to distract yourself with any crafts, or is it mainly just overwhelming? I mean, I was at the point where I couldn't really focus because I couldn't breathe properly. Mm. So I, I really haven't done a whole lot. Mostly just been drinking my various teas and thinking about crafts. Yeah. Sometimes that's nice. <laughs> Well, it's by choice. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm. I'm sorry about your indisposement. A word. I. I don't know, but I. I did start a Lord of the Rings reread, so I might end up making soup cakes at some point. Yes, amazing. I try and make one um, on the Hobbit publication anniversary every year. When is that? Ah, uh, off the top of my head, I forget. September the twenty-first. Okay, so a while away then. Yeah, yeah. I started doing it on the seventy-fifth anniversary. They did a thing where they encouraged people to have like tea parties. It's very cute. That's cute. It is almost the summer solstice, though, and I feel that is also an appropriate time for seed cake. It is. Yeah, no, definitely. What kind of seed do you put in? Because I've heard, I've seen, like, various, like, variations. I normally use caraway seed. I was thinking probably caraway, because I love mm. a gooseberry cake, and that's basically just shortbread with caraway seeds in. Mm. It's a good flavour. Probably caraway. Although I did also get, because I like crunchy snacks, I did also get mm-hmm. a bag of um, sunflower and pumpkin seeds. Nice. So I might, I might go a little bit more, actually, like, here's a bunch of seeds with it. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. A little bit more on the sort of savoury cake side. Mm. Oh, maybe that, maybe like some a, of both. A slice of that with a bit of butter. Sounds delicious. So what have you been up to? Um, I've been making a lot of broad bean-based things. You didn't make the quiche, <laughs> did you? <laughs> no. See our, our previous um, couple episodes for the quiche. <laughs> the dreaded coronation quiche. <laughs> uh, it's just because we have a lot of them. My mum planted a lot of beans so i've been cooking the beans <laughs> um i made a really nice um dip thing with um blanched broad beans and feta cheese like blended up with some like lemon juice and olive oil and stuff and that does sound really good yeah and then i, I made like, what things have broad beans in i don't know i can't think like... of any like specific recipes i think because they're not like you don't tend to see them in the supermarkets really no a pasta fagioli is good but it's just like mm-hmm. pasta with broad beans in but like as we may have discussed in this podcast i can't remember um the bean is a very ancient staple of european food it is it's it's great and it's full of proteins yeah. Like, I've seen it done as, like, a bolognese type thing, which intrigues me. Ooh. Sounds good. 
Yeah. Honestly, I I blanched them and put them in a salad. That was nice. Um, also, I managed to get hold of some of the crispy onion, like crispy fried onion bits, um, and I've just been cutting them on everything because you, you know when you, you discover something that's really delicious and then you must eat
it still mentions like you know the not so picturesque bits of life but yeah like I know I know it's been I think it was adapted as a drama it was yes so so. so presumably some dramatic events happen (laughs) yeah well not really (laughs) Um... oh is it just like relatively dramatic (laughs) it's very slice of life um <laughs> it's kind of slightly odd to describe a memoir as slice of life but like i guess it literally I mean, yeah yeah is a literally. Slice of someone's life. <laughs> uh but it's it's very just sort of gentle in its descriptions of the everyday um but yeah the tv series um some some people listening might have seen it um it was on about 10 years ago now at least um and it's, it was quite interesting in that it was quite popular and it went on for so long that it just got you know a bit silly. Oh, is it that classic adaptation problem of like, well, we've run out of source material, so let's yeah. just kind of do things. Exactly that. <laughs> um, and it just it just got a bit random. Um, but, uh. Yeah, so while it is a memoir, it often gets put under the novel category because it's a sort of lightly fictionalised account. Um, So she basically just slapped a bunch of pseudonyms on everybody. Um, So it sort of centres on the childhood of a girl called Laura Laura Timmons. Um, And Flora's name um, when she was a child was Flora Timms. And uh, Lark Rise, which is the hamlet uh, in Oxfordshire that she grew up in. Um, so that real name of the hamlet is Juniper Hill. Um, and in, in the book, she renamed it Lark Rise. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's sort of fictionalised, but the details are all mostly sort of straight out of the childhood. It has been used um, for as, as a historical source um, in some cases, but given that it has, like, it is a bit fictionalized, it is very artistically written, there's some doubt about how reliable it is. Um, so... Oh, do we, do we have a controversy already? <laughs> a little, yeah. Um... But for the most part, like it's so it's so detailed that I think it would be mostly mostly an accurate description. Um, but I'm sure there might be some artistic license in it. Um, but I find it really interesting for the the sort of domestic history um, bits that it talks about um, in in the, a period where. There was a lot of change in the countryside, like a lot of movement of uh, people towards towns and cities, but also uh, like mechanization coming in um, and social yeah, changes as well. We're firmly like late industrial revolution at this point, aren't we? Mm. And then and getting into the the big like not to get slightly outside our remit, but a lot of big legislational changes. Yes. <laughs> And some of those are mentioned. Is legislation the word? Legal is the word I meant. <laughs> not legislational, which I'm pretty sure is not a word. Legislative? I don't know. Anyway, it's, some of those are mentioned in the way that they actually impact on like the ordinary man in the street, which is, is quite interesting. Um, and it's just really beautiful, and I like it very much. So I wanted to talk about it. Uh... So, uh, Flora Thompson was born in 1876, um, and she has the same birthday as me, 5th of December. It's fun. Which is fun, yeah. Twinsies. <laughs> I did not know that until I looked it up for this, this episode. Um, so she was born in this tiny hamlet of about 30 houses in the middle of the countryside, about 19 miles from Oxford. And her parents were, her father was a stonemason. So uh, unlike 
most of the other people who lived in the hamlet who were farm labourers, um, mostly working on a farm in the next village. Uh, he had a trade and he sort of earned a little bit more money, uh, but not that much. Um, and he had to travel a fair distance to work. Um, and her mother um, was formerly a children's nurse, children's nurse maid um, in the area. So it kind of follows the pattern of like a lot of young women um, from the countryside would be going off into service. Um, and, yeah, it was and like the biggest female job at that point, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think one of them. And, and then they would come back when they got married and, and set up their own house. Um, so actually, as I remember, we've got um, my great-grandmother was also a children's maid. Um, she started like when she was 13, and we've still got a couple of the baskets that she took with her when she went off wow. to start work. Um, yeah. Wild. She my later... great-grandmother was also in service. Yeah. I think she was a regular maid, not a... Mm-hmm. Like, a, like a cleaning things maid. Yeah, it's... But but again, main job that women had at that point was servant of some variety. Mm. So it yeah, it's interesting that already like it kind of challenges some of the ideas of the past where sometimes we think that like women didn't have jobs and they were just housewives when like that all sort of depends on class, really. Um, I mean, I guess, like, the job and the housewife were mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, a lot of women did have jobs before they got married. They yeah. were just like, right, you're old enough to make a baby, go do that. And then, especially, like, if you are lower class, being a housewife is quite a difficult job as we will oh, see because yeah, you don't have any servants to help you exactly <laughs> and like everything sort of depends on you um and there's a lot of work to do much of which is described in this book so <laughs> at the beginning of the book we are we are at the beginning of the decade the 1880s and um flora's parents um i'm going to say laura actually because laura is the name of the girl in the book so laura's parents are um have two children um they will go on to have 12 but only six will survive sadly that's that's so many yeah um but it's it's not discussed that much in the book um like, I guess it's fairly normal for the time like i know we always react when people have a lot of kids in the past is like that's a lot of kids yeah so like the only other option is abstinence. <laughs> yeah, like, what, what else are they going to do? Um, so she talks a lot about how her parents were always talking about how, like, they kind of thought themselves, like, a little bit better than the other people in the hamlet. And, like, they were always talking about how they would move over to Candleford, the town, um, as soon as they could. But there was always something that would stop them like there's another baby coming or like they can't for whatever reason or you know dad's got to work on a job that's further away or like so they they... are you suggesting that control over family planning is economically beneficial (laughs) perhaps perhaps i might be so bold as to uh you're blowing my mind Anyway, so that never happened, and um, her parents ended up staying there all, up, all their lives. And so she and her siblings grew up in this tiny, tiny hamlet um, of 30 cottages, and only three of them had uh, a water supply. And so everyone else had to get their water from uh, a well that was on a vacant plot in the village. Um, apparently most of the houses were owned by uh, tradesmen from the town so if they did like fairly well it would be pretty common to try and invest 
your extra money in in a property um and there was no obligation for the landlord to provide water well, obviously not they're far too busy <laughs> yeah um so the rent apparently would be a shilling or half a crown a week sort of ranging between that um how much is a crown because i have i have a a concept of how much a shilling is i have no idea how much a crown is crown might be 10 shillings hold on how many shillings okay so a crown is a quarter of a pound or five shillings or 60 pence because old money there's a reason we changed to the metric system (laughs) yeah money money decimalization was a very good idea (laughs) yeah Um, so, uh, a quote from the book, which I particularly like, is talking about, um, how some of the other labourers, um, in, in other villages who were working on the farms or the estates, um, they would, they would live in these rent-free cottages on the estate, um, because they were working there. Um, whereas the labourers um, who would generally get about 10 shillings a week okay so about 10 shillings a week was the standard wage of the farm labourer at that time in that district and some of them lived in these sort of estate cottages but it says the hamlet people did not envy them for stands to reason they said they've always got to do just what they be told or out they goes neck and crop bag and baggage a shilling or even two shillings a week, they felt, was not too much to pay for the freedom to live and vote as they liked and go to church or chapel or neither as they preferred. That seems reasonable to me, yeah. I would I would also pay more rent if the option was <laughs> being a serf. Yes, <laughs> like you've got to kind of contend with the sort of overbearing moral standards of your um employer like as well as everything else like i a lot of the attitude described in here is look i'm i'll do whatever i'm told during my working hours once i've finished work i can go home and do what i like yes work to rule (laughs) um there's definitely like uh (laughs) <laughs> I think this um, this is pretty widespread in like any like anything that is talking about like rural people is like don't tell us what to do <laughs> I mean this is basically what peasants revolts are right they're just rural <laughs> people going no actually yeah um like there's there's a lot people will put up with but like when it gets to like trying to control people's like personal lives like that's often the last straw um so yeah a lot of these cottages like weren't great like people did what they could with them um obviously outside toilets um (laughs) apparently um sometimes there would be like little i guess like the same as today like writing on the back of the toilet door and one of them um that is quoted in the book is eat well work well sleep well and well once a day what was that last one uh eat well work well sleep well and well once a day are they suggesting doing something rude? <laughs> Potentially. I love this. It's work hard, play hard. <laughs> Victorian style. Um, talk about having the rubbish pit, which was basically a midden like uh, next to the pigsty because pretty much every house had a pig. So how she describes how people would get their food is like mostly producing it themselves um, by having every house had a vegetable garden 
um, and you could keep a pig there as well. And then most people had allotments as well. So people were able to produce most of the f their food themselves, um, although it wasn't like massively varied. Um, and the pig was like quite an important part of that. Um, so it says the children on the way home from the school would fill their arms with south thistle, dandelion, and choice long grass, or roam along the hedgerows on wet evenings, collecting snails in a pail for the pig's supper. Um, yeah, pigs will pretty That's much eat anything. Pail snail. <laughs> um, sometimes when the weekly income would not run to a, su a sufficient quantity of fattening food, an arrangement would be made with the baker or miller that he should give credit now, and when the pig was killed, receive a portion of the meat in payment. So they're kind of like mortgaging the pig. That is, like, it makes sense, but it's such a wild concept. It does. I love but it. But like, <laughs> when you're trying to like scrape together um, everything on such a small income, it's like you kind of got to accept that kind of thing because like everyone has to do the same thing now and then so I, w I want to read like a rural fantasy book which involves someone's pig being mortgaged to like a witch or something <laughs> yeah i think um i think high fantasy could take a lot from this kind of like um memoir and it doesn't matter if it's accurate or not if you're doing it in a fantasy book so go ham if you will <laughs> <laughs> sorry so apparently that would provide them with bacon for um, the whole winter perhaps longer fresh meat was a luxury only seen in a few of the cottages on sunday um mainly you'd be eating like whatever bacon you got with vegetables from the garden and potatoes potatoes are a big thing Oh yeah, we've we've spoken about this, haven't we? How they like basically as soon as potatoes came over, they were just an instant hit. Yeah, with the with the working class because it's like I can get how much food out of how much land. Useful little guys. Also, people like killing pig and butchering it is a significant task, and most people were not trained to do that. So there was a travelling pork butcher. Another perfect high fantasy character. <laughs> the travelling butcher. <laughs> Who would come around and butcher your pig for you. Um, but because he was a Thatcher during the day, he had to do it at night time. <laughs> the squealing of the pigs in the darkness. It's quite like a demonic image, to be honest. <laughs> Especially if you're a kid, like, watching this. Um... Oh, you know, once a year, the guy that put the roof on your house comes round. <laughs> there's, there's some horrific demonic noises, and then you have bacon. Yeah, I mean, L Laura did not have a good time during this. Um, but the next day, um, like everything would be processed, and yeah, and that that was the housewife's job. So you've got to be good at making bacon and lard and all sorts. <laughs> Oh god, ren rendering fat. I try not to think about rendering fat, and then you said making lard, and it's like, oh god. Yeah. It smells so bad. Like, many rural things smell bad. That is but true. rendering <laughs> fat is just particularly bad. Yeah, but it does say later on in the book that um, most people preferred their own homemade lard flavoured with rosemary leaves, to the margarine that was just coming on the market at the time, um, which apparently was known as I buttery. Mean... Okay. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to put flavouring agents in it, I'm into that. Yeah. It's just the smell of actually making it that I'm not into. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't sound great. Uh, but apparently on the following Sunday came the official pig feast when fathers and mothers, sisters and brothers, married children and grandchildren who live within walking distance arrive to dinner. See, that's just sweet. It was quite nice. Just, just like, get everyone. Um, 
On ordinary days, the pudding would be a roly-poly containing fruit, currants or jam, but it still appeared as a first course, the idea being that it took the edge off the appetite. Interesting. At the pig feast, there would be no sweet pudding, for that could be had any day, and who wanted sweet things when there was plenty of meat to be had? So yeah, an unusual occasion. I'm intrigued by the idea of having some pudding first. I guess because, like, by this point, most of the ingredients in it are fairly cheap versus the things you would be having for the main course, maybe? Yeah, I guess. I mean, like, a roly-poly pudding is mostly flour and lard, isn't it? Yeah, flour and lard, like, both things you can get. Well, you make your own lard and stuff. And then fruit you can just get for free. Um or jam if you've got that like left over um i do like the idea of the pig feast though i want to have a pig feast i think that would make a fantastic fantasy scene um (laughs) like you can 100 percent imagine it happening in the hobbit definitely and something dramatic would happen at the pig feast that's that's when gandalf shows up with some bad news (laughs) (laughs) um yeah um, there's quite a nice description. So, in addition to the bacon, all vegetables, including potatoes, were homegrown and grown in abundance. The men took great pride in their gardens and allotments, and there was always competition amongst them as to who should have the earliest and choicest of each kind. Black green peas, broad beans as big as a halfpenny, cauliflowers a child could make an armchair of, runner beans and cabbage and kale, all in their seasons, went into the pot with the roly poly and slip of bacon. Um, so, yeah, like, fairly healthy diet, honestly. I guess. Yeah, it's, it's just a, a nice stew with something a little bit treaty. Yeah, maybe less so in the winter, but um, but yeah, who knows. Um, and then you could also, at this time, um, bulk it out a little bit um, with some extra flour um, that could be got from gleaning, or apparently it was locally called leasing. So that's when the women and children, after the harvest, would go over the stubble and pick up the uh, the ears of wheat that had been missed during the harvest. So you could go and pick up the leftovers, basically, and that was free. Um, but she does say that that you know, as the sort of modernisation of the rural industry went on, um, like that that wasn't. Uh, allowed anymore so although like life is a lot of work um in this description like it's one of the things that's notable is that there's a lot of these kind of traditional things that allow you to just get a little bit extra um like being able to get the leftovers of the harvest or um having you know being able to have an allotment or like keep a pig in your back garden that that sort of bump it up a little bit and these things sort of get lost in the further industrialization of that time um which is interesting oh gosh i've I've talked loads about this and there's a lot more (laughs) (laughs) but i'll just go over a few like a few interesting bits um so highlights yeah yeah just a few highlights i definitely would recommend um reading this book i have the illustrated version which is very nice um so um again a time of transition for politics so she talks about uh what the guys in the pub would talk about because apparently the kids would hang around outside the pub um, oh, sometimes. Just like now. <laughs> exactly like today. Um, so one of the topics of argument would be um, like people, some people complaining about the, uh, the their employers and about the gentry and then some people, such as the landlord of the pub, sort of defending the employers for them they provide work. Um, and there would be this this sort of spirited um, discussion. Um, 
until someone conjured it away with the name of Gladstone. Oh, that Gladstone. <laughs> and then everyone would join in singing about Gladstone. That's amazing. I wish we still had, like, um, I've forgotten the word. I've forgotten the word. I wish we still had, like, sing songs of satirical songs about politicians, because, like, some of the stuff that's going down now would make a great, like, everyone's a little bit tipsy kind of song. <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure. Um... Nick, please edit that to make me sound smart. <laughs> And it does say that um, it talks about how, um, as you were talking about uh, legislation and how that applies to people um, under the yeah, recent the legislational changes. Yeah, the legislational changes. Um, politics is a favourite topic for under the recently extended franchise, every householder was a voter and they took their new responsibility seriously. And so, like, it's yeah, it's really nice. Like, it's a bunch of people just really happy that they finally have the right to vote and like having like these these political conversations um and just like kind of enjoying it <laughs> which again is much like now i feel but it except now it's like sixth formers setting the world to rights <laughs> yeah it's a bit um which let me be clear i love as a phenomenon it's just like okay i now really care about this thing um yeah and another thing i like about this is um that uh on payday um apparently the men will go and collect their pay um and then come home and give it straight to their wife and she would give them back some beer money and that was it (laughs) yes pocket money I mean, that's fair. Like, the ha- the part of the job of the housewife is the household accounting. So yeah, why wouldn't she be in charge of the money? Exactly. And she's the one that's doing all the shopping and stuff. Like, not that there's much of that to do, but, like... But there's yeah. still budgeting to be done. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, in fact, it says here, many husbands boasted that they never asked their wives what they did with the money. As long as there was food enough, clothes to cover everybody, and a roof over their heads, they were satisfied, they said. And they seemed to make a virtue of this, and think what generous, trusting, fine-hearted fellows they were. Yes. If her job is being in charge of the household finances, trust your wife about the money. It's quite straightforward. Um, And I think you could say here that, like, that is a somewhat, um, perhaps slightly idealized view and like i'm sure there were some pretty bad husbands um back in the day but like the fact that it was still enough of a thing to be worth commenting on is great exactly yeah (laughs) it's just yeah it's very interesting um and in fact one of the one of the main activities for the guys would be going down the pub in the evening uh with their beer money but uh she writes that nobody got drunk Uh, yes (laughs) So that was like a major social space. But she writes that nobody actually got drunk because they could only afford a half. Because their wives were keeping them in check. (laughs) So they all just made the half pint last as long as possible and stayed there like talking politics and chatting and singing songs. So it really is just students. Kind of. <laughs> I'm just gonna. I'm gonna nurse my drink. I'm gonna get political. I'm gonna maybe sing something loudly. <laughs> yeah. And apparently there was this one old guy who only had one song, but boy would he sing it every night. <laughs> and that was generally the point at which everyone sort of it was time to go home for the night. And apparently people's wives <laughs> would be like hear this floating out of the pub and be like, Ah, he's singing it. Spectacular. Right. I'll all be in soon then. <laughs> No need to call time with this guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that song, if anyone's interested, is The Outlandish Night, which is uh, quite an old folk song. <laughs> you have to learn this song. Um, but I am, I am quite fond of the particular tradition of folk music, which is some guy singing in the pub and going on for ages. <laughs> It feels like what folk music's for to some extent, I think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love the livelier versions, but <laughs> it, does, it does kind of make me happy when that happens. 
Maybe because it doesn't happen very much. Maybe if it was like every night, like this one guy with the same song, I would be somewhat less charmed by it. I don't know. Like if it's just about the same time every night, I quite like it as a just like routine thing. <laughs> like, you know, I've, I've, I've done my work. I've gone, I've had food. I've gone to the pub. That guy's singing. It's time to go home to my lovely wife, <laughs> who's great at accounting. <laughs> um, and apparently, one of the other main activities was like those were kind of your two, your two sort of leisure time things were like working the garden, um, like growing the the best vegetables that you can, and going to the pub, um, and that's that's kind of your lot. Um, I mean, that's. That's still a lot of old men's main activities now. I mean, that's basically cottagecore, isn't it? <laughs> I, I mean, literally. I, I guess co- cottagecore is doing just those bits without all of the like actual working hard. Yeah, without all of the, the living on your own bacon and and labouring like ten hours a day and for... having the thatcher come and slaughter a pig in your backyard. Yeah. <laughs> Um, anyway, so she mentions as well this old couple in the village who uh, own their own house, um, which is a very cushy retirement, and they always seem to have enough to live on. Uh, this is Sally and Dick, and uh, Sally is a very formidable lady who's over 80, so she would have remembered the Regency. Um, and in fact, she remembered the times when there was only six houses there, and all of them had like a really big garden and the right to keep their animals on the common. Um, which by the oh. 1880s been enclosed, and we talked about that on the we podcast. We did. We got very angry about that. Yes. So I've Edra's episode. <laughs> I've mentioned like some of these little traditions that allowed people to just sort of get a little bit more, like to support themselves. But Sally remembers when um, the cu- the countrymen had these more extra rights of like keeping their animals on the common. So her father. Um, like had a cow, chickens and a pig and everyone had fruit trees and they were able to sort of pretty much um, feed themselves um, on on all of their own produce and sometimes her dad would do a day's work here and there on somebody else's land so he could get some cash to buy you know other stuff like clothes and uh, and extras um so yeah, just like a full interesting like um interesting look at the passing of time and the sort of erosion of, of certain rights with the rise rights with the rise of industrialization. Um there is also oops. Um okay, so a surprising amount of variety um in the form of people coming in from outside um so uh, she writes about callers made a pleasant diversion in the hamlet women's day and there were more of these than might have been expected um so there was the guy who came round with his cart selling fish and fruit um so he went round some of the big houses as well which meant he had a bit of a larger stock um so but he wouldn't necessarily take these around the hamlet. He would just come round with like a box of fish, um, some little oranges. Um, and even at these price, they were luxuries. But as it was still only Monday and a few coppers might remain in a few purses, the women felt at liberty to crowd round his cart to examine and criticise his wares, even if they bought nothing. So you've still got your window I shopping. Love it specifically examine and criticise. <laughs> yes, that's part it's of the one, right? It's not like Kuover, it's like, oh, that's a rubbish orange. <laughs> um, yep. Um, there's also the baker who comes with his cart three times a week. Um, who apparently was a ship's carpenter by trade. Um, who then got married and uh, decided to leave the sea and become a baker. Um, and then there would also be peddlers. Um, so that was sort of pretty a pretty meager job, really. Um, these 
these people would be walking around with their pack um trying to find customers so like they would just have a massive uh backpack essentially um and carrying around little things um it says matches shoelaces lavender bags um or things like uh most people um could afford a paper of pins perhaps um but some of them if they had better wares would have uh, a dress length or a shirt length of material so when laura goes off to work she has a new dress made from one of the dress lengths in uh peddler's pack um so is a dress length just like here's a couple of meters it's about enough to make a dress out of yeah exactly uh as far as i can tell um there's also um and i've never heard of this before a cheap jack so that's kind of like a secondhand guy um who uh, it says one autumn evening just before dusk he arrived with his cartload of crockery and tinware and set out his stock on the grass by the roadside uh, before a backcloth painted with icebergs and penguins and polar bears i guess um, it'll get your attention i guess so yeah so everyone rushes up and crowds around uh, to see what he's got um and he's got some nice things he's he's got a tea service decorated with pink roses um 21 pieces and not a flaw in any of them uh teapots trays dishes and basins that kind of thing and he sort of auctions them off um and that that is like an occasion of great excitement that people are still talking still talking about several years later that's wonderful <laughs> It's lovely. Apparently he didn't come back because he didn't make a lot of sales, but people had a good time. Uh, in fact, one, uh, one guy who's uh, just come back uh, from being a soldier and got married and has a, a little bit of money on him, buys the matching tea service for his new wife, um, who is considered to be very lucky. I imagine it's quite hard to find a second-hand matching tea service at this point because you'd probably keep that thing until a significant amount of it was no longer usable. I imagine so. I mean, it might even have been new, I don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, she also talks about being at school. Um, so the sort of games that they played. Um, but then also like the kind of education, which was like, so they only had one teacher um, and the school was just one room. And so they had to teach like all, all of the ages um, from very young to like 14 um, at the same time, essentially, just like giving them different tasks, um, which is, is really strange to us to think about. Um, and they had to walk a mile and a half to the next village to go to school because there wasn't one in the hamlet, there was only a pub. Uphill both ways in the snow? <laughs> Possibly. In this case, it was true. <laughs> um, so what they got taught as well was like a lot of religious stuff. Um, Victorians. Sure. Yeah, the Victorians. Every morning at ten o'clock, the rector arrived to take the older children for scripture. Um, and yeah, she sort of says like he was quite nice, but they didn't like him because he kept telling them all that like it was God's plan that they were poor and they should be reverent before their betters. I cannot imagine where someone would object to being told that multiple times a week. I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, there's also a part where she talks about how the vicar's daughter um, was generally like was quite nice and like did a lot of things. Like, for example, whenever a woman uh, had a baby, um, someone would run to the village to get the box, and the box was put together by the vicar's daughter, and it had like a bunch of stuff for a new baby, uh, including a christening gown. 
um, that would that would just go around everyone, basically. Um, but uh, she didn't get a lot of thanks <laughs> for it. Um, and in fact, she had a habit of like sort of turning up at people's houses for a chat at like just the wrong time when people were about to do something, and then they had to let her in and make small talk. So like people would sometimes pretend they didn't hear her knocking. <laughs> Um, so Laura as she grows up um, being pretty good she taught herself to read so her dad um, because they are constantly thinking of moving um, he sort of starts her off intending her to go to school in the town um, with like a, a children's primer for reading um, and she essentially teaches herself to read and then she's always enjoys reading at school and so as she grows up she starts to essentially be an assistant teacher um and so at school she's able to read about like far off places um we like look at the atlases and um she reads washington irving <laughs> Uh, and Ivanhoe. Um, yeah, and then she talks a bit about the kind of festivals and sort of celebrations um, that there would be as well. Um, she likes going to listen to the travelling preachers. <laughs> so there's actually like fairly um, a sort of variety of um religion even in this like tiny hamlet oh like a pick your flavor kind of thing yeah pretty much i mean it's all christianity but <laughs> different flavors um so like there's a few catholics um uh there are also some methodists and they don't have their own church there but every sunday evening they have a service in one of their cottages and they get they uh, try and get someone to, to come out to preach to them. Um, and she likes going because you get to meet people from out of town. Uh, and it's quite exciting because like the Methodists are quite loud and passionate and you don't get that generally in a Protestant church. In a, well, I've, in a I've heard worse reasons sort of to pick a religion. Anglican, yeah, it's more like it's kind of entertainment. Um, but also it gets her out of the house on a Sunday evening because she's expected to sit around the fire with her whole family and listen to her father reading and she's not allowed to talk. Yeah, that does sound incredibly tedious. <laughs> yeah. Like, even if it's an enjoyable thing that he's reading, that sounds incredibly tedious. Yeah, it's like, sit there and be a good child. <laughs> So, um, yeah, that's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of stop there. She then, at the age of 14, she has to leave school, obviously, um, because her family can't afford to send her anywhere else. Um, and she gets a job at the post office. Um, and that is in a much larger village um, that's close to the town of Candleford. Um, and the postmistress is quite sort of formidable as well. Um, and she gets trained in the post office. And um, there's, yeah, there's some interesting things in that that are sort of less on the domestic history side, but there are things she talks about, like um, uh, it's when bicycles were sort of just coming in as well. And oh, the, really? yeah. And um, so they're not like in super common use yet. But there are groups of young men who are like bicycle aficionados. <laughs> and on the weekends, they will go out on these, uh, like they'll have like bikes, bicycle clubs and they'll go out on these trips and they have like little matching hats. Biker boys. <laughs> yeah. Victorian biker boys. <laughs> the original bikers. And like, they will, <laughs> they will like ride out from the town. And they will send a telegram from the post office back to like their families just to prove this like the speed they got there. <laughs> it's like they got there by this time. 
That's adorable. It's lovely. <laughs> and she also sort of starts going out with the gamekeeper on one of the nearby states, um, who she meets on one of her post rounds. Um, like she she really enjoys like walking, doing doing the rounds, um, delivering the post and sort of going through the, the woods and the countryside before everyone's up. Um, but so she meets this gamekeeper um, while she's going through the woods. Um, she's about 16 at this point. And um, he, yeah, she sort of starts going out with him, like, just, just kind of just see what it's like. Um, and he eventually, like, he gets pretty serious about it. Um, and she considers marrying him and, like, having a nice life being the gamekeeper's wife and having a nice cottage and feeding the pheasants but he's kind of insufferable like he only talks about himself so she says no thank you and then she decides to go and transfer to a different post office and see the sights and then she becomes a writer good for her yeah she eventually does get married to another postman and um yeah has a nice time publishes her memoirs um which are very well received and continue to be enjoyed to this day. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's a bit of a whirlwind look at, at Black Rice Counterfeit. Um, I've talked for quite a long time, I apologise, but I just, I really love it. And there's so much to talk about that is interesting. Um, and it's, it's very beautifully written. Um, I would really encourage anyone who is interested in... Um, in sort of country life, um, in the past, uh, or poetic descriptions of nature to read it. Um, yeah, and I'm gonna I'm gonna stop now because I've talked long enough. <laughs> I hope it was enjoyable. I mean, I enjoyed it. Good. Um, but it's yeah, I think it's a it's a view on the past that you don't hear that often. And there's, yeah, there's always a lot more going on than meets the eye. <laughs> Even, like, what you might assume, like, it would be a pretty boring time in the rural, extremely rural, like, countryside, but there's actually quite a lot going on. Oh, there's also a great part where they go to visit uh, some relatives in the town and her dad gets into a massive political argument with like the uncle and like just, just storms out um and it's brilliant but uh there you go oh also um they try they do like a school play and they try and get all the kids to sing like the tory anthem and her dad is against this because like he is like very much a radical um and so they get around it by like well she wants to be in the play, so she can stand up there, but she doesn't have to sing it. She can just, like, stand at the back and pretend to. Reminds me of when I joined the Brownies and I just mouthed the little oath that you're supposed to do. Uh, because part of it is swearing to serve the Queen, and I just refused. I love that you were like that at Brownie age, which is below 10. Listen, you have not met my parents. <laughs> Amazing. Um, I was a brownie and a guide and I just I will admit to having quit guides very early on because they gave us homework. What? And I just refused again so I was just like, no, I'm not going to do this anymore actually. I'm going to go play Xbox. It's such a massive like power trip as a kid when you realise that you can quit stuff that you don't want to do, isn't it? Like, ugh, oh, I have the power. But yeah, that is um that is it from me. Um if you want to keep up with the Bread and Thread podcast, um you can find us on Twitter for the moment at Bread and Thread, <laughs> where we have pictures of stuff we talk about on the podcast um we have teasers for upcoming episodes um and we often retweet things to do with domestic history 
We're also on Tumblr, uh, also at Bread and Thread, where you can find pretty much the same, um, but probably more reliable. Uh, we. I'm going to continue to spell your voice. <laughs> um, we have an email if you would like to um, let us know uh, anything that was sparked by an episode or you uh, have a suggestion for something we could talk about on the podcast, you can email us at breadandthreadpodcast at uh, gmail.com. Um, is that it? Uh, we do also have a Patreon if you want to support. We do! Them. How can I forget the Patreon? Uh, it is also Bread and Thread. And we have monthly recipes and we have a Discord server. Um, and so if you would like to support the podcast, you can do it there. So thank you for listening. And we will see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>